Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Today, um, well, let me do something just a wee bit different. I want to begin by reading you a quote from... Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy's opinion in a 1992 um, hearing. He said, at the heart of liberty, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of life. Having said that, I'm now going to ask you to stand for the reading of the Word of God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Father, I pray your anointing upon your word on our hearts and our minds to receive in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week I said that this would be one of those real controversial ones, dealing with one of the major controversies of our time. We do not indulge in these things and dwell on them, neither do we shy or avoid them. And as part of our series, which we began weeks ago, entitled Origin Story, this is certainly part of that. An origin story is what, what tells the backstory, the motivation, the character, the things that shaped the individual. And so as we understand our, our collective uni, universal origin story inside the scripture, we have been examining the um, book of Genesis. To fully embrace today's conversation you really need to have been part of last week's conversation. And if you haven't done that or weren't there, then I would encourage, implore you, in fact, to please look at that communication on the image of God. They flow together with this conversation today. One of the same scriptures was being referenced. You know, God created in his own image, in the image of God. And what this means is that every human being, regardless of who you are, is stamped with the image of God. There's something... There's something that that makes you intrinsically valuable. It's not what you bring to the party. It's just who you are. And and the truth of that teaching, of that theology, is that whether you're straight, whether you are gay, whether you are a Republican or a Democrat, left or right, wherever you're at in any spectrums of belief or position of any kind, of any type, you have value. And that means that we need to approach any conversation, particularly with those that we um, even disagree with, with a level of respect and a level of 
thoughtfulness in the midst of anything that we do, and all the more so with this conversation today, creative license. One side quote I'll just make here. Someone earlier thought this was a Bible. This is not a Bible. This is a journal, and it'll represent something a little bit later here, so just understand that that's a journal representing a life. Bill Maher is a comedian. He is um, a social commentator, and um, he had on one of his shows recently... um, He began this way. He said, if something about the human race is changing at a previously unprecedented rate, we have to at least discuss it. Broken down over time, the LGBT population of America seems to be roughly doubling every generation. A recent Gallup poll um, gave us this. The silent generation, which would have been my father's, 0.8%. 0.8% identify LGBT. Baby boomers, 2.6. Generation X, 4.2. Millennials, 10.5%. And of Generation Z that identify as LGBTQ, 20.8%. Meyer went on to say this. He said, when th- things change this much, this fast, we're allowed to ask, what's up with that? Mar is a um, very liberal atheist, one that I would not often find myself in agreement with, but in this particular case, I do. As we examine the idea of the fluidity of gender, of trans, and all the other things that are involved with that, there are two books I could recommend to you. They have been vilified, but they are um, uh, appropriate books to read on the subject. One is entitled Irreversible Damage, the Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters by Abigail Schreier. The other one is When Harry Met San, uh, Sally by Ryan T. Anderson. Neither of these individuals, to my knowledge, are Christians. Um, I'm sure Abigail isn't. Um, they both uh, have come from a background of, of um, either philosophy or legal or journalism. And um, one of the core issues of Abigail Schreier is to examine the trend that's going on right now. And so in this book, Irreversible Damage, she's saying that historically, the fact is, gender dysphoria affects 0.01% of roughly 1 in 10,000 males. The numbers were much smaller for females, affecting 1 in 30,000 individuals. I should say at this time, too, my background and my training is in psychology as well as in theology. These were things that I was taught decades back in the 1900s. (laughs) Today, though, she writes, and studies have shown these numbers have risen enormously. Remember that earlier, 1 in 30,000 for females. It's now in 1 in 20 for college-age women now identifying as trans. In the United Kingdom, where they've centralized medical care, they can see the numbers, she says, more easily. There have been reports of a 4,000, some studies I've seen have said 5,000% spike in the referrals of young biological women to the National Gender Service for Hormones, followed by by, uh, surgical uh, correction. These are the numbers we're dealing with. It has been a massive uh, change in the nature of mankind right now. Some of the roots of this I want to take you on for a moment with 
Um, whenever I see an author or I read an article, I try to find out the background of the author, where they went to college, what their persuasions are philosophically. It helps me understand where they're coming from and also to filter sometimes information. When we're dealing with the whole issue of gender fluidity and um, LGBT, all this part of that, you really need to begin in this country with a guy named Alfred Kinsey. Alfred Kinsey did a number of uh, studies back in the 50s. And um, he is really the father of the sexual revolution in the 60s. A lot of what he did in the 50s fed into that. Um, His books made the claim that all people are sexual from a very early age. He says, therefore, sexual activity by youth should be viewed as normal and healthy. Moreover, Kinsey also claimed that all sex, all sex, no matter how violent, unhealthy, or abnormal, was normal and should be encouraged when he came out with this book, it just radically changed people's perspectives, especially because he supposedly had studies and charts. Most of those studies and charts have been seriously questioned and actually debunked at this point, considering the fact that a big part of the population for his studies were men who were in prison. And so it changes the baseline of the study. And that's what you have to hear when you read a study or hear of a study. Look at what the understanding of that study is. And with the background, just aside here for a moment, um, people that are, are, are against abortion want to take a certain study that says that the majority of biologists agree that conception is the beginning of life. And that study has a problem with it. Because basically the person sent out the study to like 60, 80, 100,000 biologists and then just took the, those that responded back to come up with the fact that 87, 90%, whatever, say this. That's a problematic study because a significant portion didn't respond at all. So look at the roots of the studies. So when Kinsey came out with this, it blew things up. His Kinsey Institute um, formulated a lot of this material, and then from that came a guy named John William Money, just like Money. He's an Australian, no, a New Zealander, but he spent most of his time in the United States. Coming out and being influenced by Kinsey, he's a psychologist, sexologist, did a lot of study, did a lot of research, He's the one that basically um, influenced the idea of societal constructs of gender. In other words, that, that the society has said that you are male or female. A lot of studies have actually shown the reverse, that given no destruction at all, that those who are male or female act out certain ways as male and female. But the word today is that it's a structure or a social construct. He's the one, money, who introduced the terms gender identity, gender role, and sexual orientation. So from a straight line from money to Kinsey is where these things come together. This is a little problematic as well for those of us who, again, dig deeper. In 1997, an academic study criticized money's work in a lot of respects, particularly in regard to the involuntary sex reassignment, I won't go into this, of the child David Reamer, R-E-I-M-E-R, Reamer committed suicide at age 38, and his brother died of an overdose at age 36. Some of Money's therapy sessions from which he drew his conclusions involved him encouraging and setting these two brothers up for sexual um, activity. And so it was one of his key argumentative points. And one committed suicide, and the other one had an overdose and died. So there are questions, again, into how these things have been developed or where they have come from. One of the things that um, Money worked at was in John Hopkins. In fact, John Hopkins early on 
began to do some of this kind of a work. And there's a guy named Paul McHugh who was the, um, in charge of the psychiatric department uh, there. And he wrote something, I won't read the entire thing, but he wrote in June 12, 2014, an op-ed saying transgender surgery isn't the solution. And he writes, amongst other things here, that when children who reported transgender feelings were tracked without medical or surgical treatment at both Vanderbilt and London uh, Portman Clinic, 70-80% of them spontaneously lost those feelings. Other studies have shown that a vast majority of, of young people, when they're in the ages four and five, somewhere in that range or so, have, um, have uh, a sense of gender dysphoria. What gender dysphoria means is that I'm male, but my, my, I don't feel comfortable in this body. I, I, I think I'm female. I feel more feminine, and it's that type of an item. So a significant portion of young people, many of us in this room, would have had that kind of experience, whether you remembered it or not, when you were in your three, four, and five years of age. Over 83% plus, some numbers have tasted as high as 90%, resolve those things if they have proper role models and they're not encouraged in another way. They resolve that out before puberty. Um, a smaller percentage continue on. But of those who particularly um, exhibit transgender needs as they get older, dysphoria, 63% of those individuals have already been diagnosed with a different type or other types of psychiatric issues before the trans issue even came into play. What Abigail Schreier is trying to address is a new thing called rapid onset, um, which is now happening in teenagers. And suddenly, this is completely different from what we've ever had in psychology before, because you had it at an early age, it would resolve out, but now a massive amount of things happening with teenagers and mostly, overwhelmingly, young women. And what Shire's work and others have pointed out to is majorly, mostly due to the social media impact. Young women have always been influenced by, by what they're seeing and their looks and how they're judged on that, and the magazines were bad enough, but with social media, it's exploded. And so today, the young people are being told, you young people are being told, that unless you're experimenting and exploring the parameters of things, that actually you're abnormal, you're weird, you're not normal. If you're normal, then you explore and expand your horizons and take a look around as to what else is out there and the possibilities of that. This is having a significant impact upon the youth today. And as we see, the generations have actually been doubling in the sense of their involvement in this area or identification in that area. Um, McHugh went on to write, we at John Hopkins University, which in the 1960s was the first American medical center to venture into sex reassignment surgery, quote-unquote, he says, launched a study in the 70s comparing the outcomes of transgendered people who had the surgery with the outcomes of those who did not. Most of the surgically treated patients described themselves as satisfied by the results, but their subsequent psychosocial adjustments were no better than those who didn't have the surgery. And so at Hopkins, we stopped doing sex assignment, reassignment surgery since producing, quote, a satisfied, unquote, but still troubled patient seemed an inadequate reason for surgically amputating normal organs. He said, it now appears that our long ago decision was a wise one because there was a 2011 study that was done at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. This is the only long-term longitudinal study that's been done. It was done over 30 years, followed 324 people who had sex reassignment surgery. The study revealed that beginning about 10 years after having the surgery, the transgender began to experience increasing mental difficulties. Most shockingly, 
their suicide rate mortality rose by 20-fold. In other words, they were more likely to commit suicide by 20 times more likely um, than comparable non-transgender population. One of the issues is said, if a person doesn't transition, they commit suicide. And while that does happen, it's not as common as is being portrayed. Quite the opposite. There's an increase in that um, after uh, those issues. And so as a result, McHugh went on to write and say basically this, at the heart of the problem is confusion over the nature of the transgendered. Sex change, he writes, the psychiatrist, head of chief of psychiatry, and Jen Hopkins, is biological impossible. People who undergo sex reassignment surgery do not change from men to women or vice versa. Rather, they become feminized men or masculinized women. Claiming that this is civil rights matter and encouraging surgical intervention is in reality to collaborate with and promote, he says, a mental disorder. His words, not mine. So why, if this is such a massive issue going on and young people are having these things done and, and healthy things being said, why is this being permitted? Why is it being encouraged? There's a number of reasons, mostly ideology, but there's something else. In 2008, 40 United Kingdom children were on hormone blockers. And it's hormone blockers, it's um, testosterone, estrogen. Uh, they're finding the side effects of these have serious long-term effects, a weakening of the bones, heart issues, uh, a variety of ailments that come from these things, especially when they're applied when they're young. The result of those 40, 40 young people was um, about 88, I'm $800,000 in revenue came from that to the people performing that. If you put this into 2018 when a study was done, the number increased by 4,000%. That generated up to $36 million in the city of London and its surrounding areas. If you take those numbers and spread them over the U.S., that comes to a $1.7 billion revenue jump for kids prescribed blockers in a 10-year span. Some of this information comes from someone named Kelly Nugent, a person who transitioned from a woman to a man and is known as Scott Nugent now, who is very harsh in his criticism about what's going on now. This person's in their 50s or so and regrets having done what they did. They have health issues. They have serious problems. So Scott, Kelly Nugent believes that she knows why, and she's saying it's because of the finances involved. It's because of the money that's being involved as to why these things have driven the way that they have. And so he is, rather she, is currently, and here's the confusion we have. It's a man who, or it's a woman who's identifying as a man. And so we get confused even how to say that. He's a man. When we get into the whole pronoun issue, it gets even more complex. I don't know how many articles I've read of an individual who doesn't identify as binary, and as I'm reading their bio bi biography or so, it's suddenly the word they pops in, and I'm like, where'd the other person come into this conversation? And then I realize that's how they identify. They use the term they. One of the real issues, as we said earlier in a conversation, is the importance of language. As the language gets confused or more detached from reality, reality, the more easy it is to actually control and manipulate people and the perceptions of what's going around. One of the discussions is on pronouns. Being told that to use the pronoun, preferred pronoun of an individual, is only a matter of respect. I would say it is not. It's a matter of ideology. There are four professors that I've charted so far in America who all, I don't know if they were Christians or not, but they, they chose to 
used the new name of their student. They were respectful of the student, but they would not use their preferred pronoun because it didn't line up with their biology. In each of those four cases, they either lost their position or were seriously penalized for it. In each of those four cases, when they appealed to the courts, the courts reversed that and either reinstated them or gave them compensation. In other words, the courts are saying this is an ideological issue, not an issue of respect. And so as a Christian, based on the scripture and the understanding of things, I will respect everybody. I will be thoughtful in how I do that, and I can even use the name, but I cannot use those pronouns that don't line up with the truth of who the individual is. And we can say, well, wait a minute, this is hate speech. And some of you young people have been, been really um, pushed with the idea that this is hate speech. Jonathan Edwards made the statement that we engage one who opposes us without angry reflections or contemptuous language as seeking his good rather than his hurt. More deliver him from the calamity in which he or she has fallen than to be even with him for the injury that allegedly that individual was bought. And if you know anything about this church, and especially if you're a guest here today and just walked in, I'm so sorry you walked in today. <laughs> um, next week will be much safer. But if you know us enough, then you know that we are thoughtful in how we deal with people, that we care about individuals. And because of the image of God, we need to respect everybody. And if you struggle with these issues, whether it's trans or LGBT or whatever the case is, you need to understand that God loves you still. He does not necessarily affirm what you do any more than he affirms what I do. We all have broken aspects of our lives. And we all are challenged by the scripture and by the one who created us. But he does love you. My family is musically gifted, my extended family. And so there were times that I thought, I'm not kidding, this is up to even my 20s in college. I thought, if I just sit at a piano and I just believe, if I just release myself, then I will play a symphony of music. And I'm not kidding. There were different times I sat at a piano and I'm going to just use the force, Luke. And I would go, and man, it sounded like a cat screaming. You know, it was bad. Now, I've got family members, immediate family members that, that literally sit down and that gift was there. It wasn't for me, no matter how much I believed or thought that. Now, here's another thing as a young people person. When I was a kid, I thought, I really thought if I believed hard enough, I can fly. And I'm not talking about an airplane. Okay? I really thought this. I thought, there's something in me. It's got to be. I, can, I, I just so much want to have the freedom of the skies. And, and I thought, if I just believe this enough. And now, fortunately, to test this theory, which I did several times, I did it off the edge of my bed. Okay? Not off the roof. And I know some of you will be shocked by this, but I didn't fly not one time. Okay, now, the reason I didn't fly, some of you are aware of. And that's because um, there's this thing called gravity. And no matter what I believe or what I think, it has an effect. If I take this book, this journal, and I let go of it, it's not going to go upwards. I want it to go upwards. I believe it'll go upwards. It won't go upwards. I want it to hover. It won't hover. If I let go of this book, it's going to drop. That's called gravity. That's a law. It just exists. Now, if you're a friend of mine and you are 
in your apartment, in your penthouse, and you're scoping the internet, and you're reading other things and talking with other people, and, and you've been told that this whole idea of gravity is a myth, that, that it doesn't exist. And you decide suddenly that, that, that rather than take that elevator, the 54 stories down, and take and waste all that time, that now because you know that gravity doesn't exist, just made up of, of really narrow-minded, um, ignorant people, that you're going to step out your window and take the faster way down. And it is faster. Okay, it is faster. Now, if you and I engage in a conversation, am I hateful for talking to you and saying, listen, that gravity thing, it really works. I know you believe otherwise, and we can discuss these beliefs, and I respect you, and I respect your beliefs, but in this case, you have something that will harm you. If I say to you, look at, and this is the truth, this is truth right now. I, I, I was 5'11". My doc says last time in there, I'm at 5.9 now. Gravity sucks. Okay? If I live long enough, I'm going to be five foot one. If I say, and I can show you, that's a truth. Am I hateful? Or am I loving? And kind? Young people, you've been told that even attempting to have this conversation is hateful. It's not. George Orwell, someone I mentioned before, wrote the book 1984, incredible prescient work about a dystopian society where language and words are twisted. He was the one that made the statement, the further society drifts from the truth, the more it will hate those that speak it. We are not the hateful ones. I understand there are those in the church and on the spectrum of churches that are absolutely hateful and use these words to abuse and beat and, 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 and tear people down, and that is true, and that is not us. There are also those way out on the spectrum that in order to curry the favor of society and not have the tough conversations, either never bring this up or agree with the fact that gravity doesn't exist, that's also not us. What we strive to be is what is referred to as a biblical Christian. And 60% of the people in this country identify as Christian. But what does that mean? Again, you look under the studies and you find that only 6% of those individuals are biblical Christians. In other words, only 6% are basing their lives actually on the scripture and what it says and what it means. The issue of, of fluidity of gender and the issue of gender has powerful, specific meaning. One person who is referenced or common in regards to this is J.K. Rowling. She's the writer of Harry Potter. And again, like Bill Meyer and many others lining up on this discussion, I wouldn't necessarily agree with on a lot of ways. But she wrote, if sex isn't real, there's no same-sex attraction. In other words, that affects gays and lesbians. If sex isn't real, the lived reality of women globally is erased. I know and love trans people, but erasing the concept of sex removes the ability of many to meaningfully discuss their lives. It isn't hate to speak the truth. And she was castigated for doing that. There was a meeting in Sterling Heights a couple of years back. And um, we were at this meeting. It was discussing some LGBT issues and rules that the city was going to put to effect. And as we stood in that meeting, and Jeff Brown actually was there with me as well, he was reminding me, there were basically two groups represented. You had the straights, many of whom were Christian, some I hope weren't. 
because the straits were pretty rude and crude and ugly in what they presented. There were a few great bright spots, but, but it was not nice. Then you had the uh, gay and lesbian crowd, and they actually handled themselves much better than the straight crowd did, much more respectfully. Disagreed with their position entirely, but honestly, sitting there, I'm sitting here going, I'm more of this crowd than this crowd as far as attitude is concerned. I hope that doesn't shock some of you too much, but, but here's the thing that was interesting. At one point in time in the conversation, near the latter end of the night, in the midst of all the rancor and everything going back and forth, a man stood up in the front. He was clearly transitioning to a woman, and he made it clear, I'm, I'm transitioning, I'm, I'm going to be a woman. And then he, he stated how um, he'd lost his job over this and other things that had happened as a result of this. You could have heard a pin drop Nobody jumped in. The gays and lesbians were as upset about this person didn't want anything to do with them. And clearly the straight crowd didn't either. And I got to tell you, in that moment of time, all I could feel was compassion for this person. Not pity, but compassion. As they shared something that nobody wanted to be a part of even on that. Years back, lesbians had a problem with the gay men because they still saw them as entitled patriarchs. <laughs> Then when that got kind of sorted out, both gays and lesbians had a problem with bisexuals because bisexuality challenges their concept of being born the way they are and same-sex attractions there. Then all the groups got together and when the transitions, trans, trans came along, they all had a real problem with trans because now are you saying that as a gay man that I basically am just living in the wrong body? And it, 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 you think this is a massive movement. It's not. It's as, it's as, as, as disorganized and as, as ununified as anything else that's out there. What it comes down to is a massive, massive level of confusion. And so now the trends, as I say, in our society, for young people here today, as you're being told that you're weird if you're not exploring your sexuality, if you're not walking those things through, well, here's a few things I'd like to reference to you. One of these things comes from a long line right now, an increasing grouping of detransitioners, and these are the stories you're not hearing. People who did these things, but then detransitioned out of regret. Look up Kira Bell, K-E-I-R-A Bell. She was 14 when she first began identifying as a boy, and two years later she was prescribed puberty blockers, testosterone. At 20, she went ahead and had a double mastectomy. At 23, she identifies now again with her biological sex. At the time, Kira believed these treatments would help her, quote, achieve success, uh, happiness. She said, I was struck into severe depression and anxiety. I felt extremely out of place in the world. I was really struggling with puberty and my sexuality. Is there anyone in this room that never struggled with puberty? <laughs> puberty and the whole time of growing up was a difficult time. We are told that the, that, that the human brain does not fully develop until age 25. Your body is developing far faster than your brain. And in most men, it's not until age 55 that the brain fully develops. <laughs> this is where you're feeling what you're feeling. So she sought help for this. She says, when I was questioning my identity, no, there was no one to find support that didn't affirm the delusion of being in the wrong body. I have women I know in my life who are not stereotypical women. And they tell me today in their 50s and 60s, if we'd had this stuff, who knows where it would have messed our heads up. They're clearly women. They're very comfortable as being women. But they're not stereotypical. They're, they're, they have certain traits that aren't the same as that, but they're still women. 
I know men that are not stereotypical men. <laughs> I play sports. I like to fight. But I also have a very sensitive side. And I'm very sweet. <laughs> uh, is that true? Yes, see? Okay, she says it's true. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes. I, 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 granted. Honestly, if I'd had some of these things when I was young, it, it could have messed me up just as easily as anything else. We sometimes look at these things and say, well, I'm not the stereotypical man. Or I'm not the stereotypical woman. Don't get lost in that. Some of these stereotypes mess us up as much as anything else in the process of stuff. Carrie began questioning the ideology behind her transition when she found herself upset about the case of Rachel Delazelle. So you might remember her. She was a white college professor who identified as black. She says, I couldn't come up with a reason why being transgender was, quote, more valid than transracial. And it was the start of a slow wake-up call. I had finished my physical transition, and my health was beginning to decline. It was at that point I realized I didn't want to live a lie, and that it was really important to be myself. You can look up Chloe Cole at age 17, a Californian. Helena Kirshner, 23-year-old from Cincinnati. There's a whole number of, of, of young people that are now coming out and saying this is not how these things should have played out. We don't have much time here. I, I'll, I'll, there's there's a, one medical study that, um, or medical thing called uh, Medical Net, I think it is. And uh, um, they've come up with uh, Medicine Net. 72 different genders in addition to the two that we have. Some of these are like this. And I'm not making a joke. Affected gender. This is based on the person's mood swings or fluctuations as to where they're at. Areogender. This gender identify changes according, identity changes according to one's surrounding. These are genuine things they're saying that exist. I raise those up to say that it clearly more and more it's a matter of how we think, what we feel, and that we're determining rather than anything that's going to be based on anything that has any grounding of stuff. In Scripture, if we go to Genesis as we read here, it says male and female, he created them. I want you to understand the intimacy of what was being done here in this creation. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, then God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The intimacy of... The Spirit of God enters into the man. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, it says, the Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Matthew Vines, a, a um, Harvard graduate who's a gay man trying to convince the church to embrace more and more of these things, has misused scripture in a way on this passage because he'll take this passage and say, it's not good for man to be alone. And then he stops there and says, so when we don't allow homosexual relationships, then we're saying that man has to be alone for his life and we're going against God and you're doing blasphemy by doing that, he says. But he completely misses the point. I hope you're not as ignorant on scripture. When God said it's not good for man to be alone, he did what? He created a specific person and that's, ladies, where you guys come in. He created a woman to answer that specifically. And says this, I'll make a helper suitable for him. And that term helper suitable means like opposite. There's something the same, but there's something opposite about that. How many men know about the opposite aspect of the women that you live with? <laughs> and how many women know about the really opposite aspects of the man? But there is a like opposite. There's something also that connects us, but that is different and unique. And there's so much confusion at times as it is for men trying to understand women and women understanding men. Why do we need another hundred genders to try to sort that out? 
we have enough trouble with the two that we have. But God created them still. Women, you can say, why did he ever start with men? Men can say, yeah, what about the women? But God created them, and he says it's good. And look at the intimacy. So God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, then closed it up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib to be taken out of the man. He brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh shall be called a woman. And she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother, and he's united to his wife and became one flesh. Okay, so what, Randy? This is all Old Testament. This is Genesis. Yes, it's the beginning. It's the origin story. But it's not like Jesus would ever buy into this stuff, because Jesus affirms everyone, and he loves everyone, and he's just... Jesus is being challenged in the book of Matthew about divorce. And his response is to go to Genesis. He didn't need to do that. He would have said, well, divorce is this. He goes to Genesis and he says, Matthew 19, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Jesus is affirming marriage between a man and a woman. He's affirming gender identity as male and female. He's very specific in that. So don't let anybody tell you Jesus never addresses these issues. He did. Deuteronomy chapter 22 verse 5 says, a woman must not wear woman's clothing, nor a man wears woman's clothing. Wear men's clothing, nor a man wears woman's clothing. For the Lord your God detests anyone who does this. We won't read this right now, but in 1 Corinthians, it talks also about different roles and different things that are part of that because there's unique roles for male and female. And while some of the stereotypes that our, our society's created may be malfunctioning, there are still specific roles. Now, clothing can be a changeable issue. Decades past, ladies today who are wearing slacks, we would say, well, you're wearing men's clothing. They would have judged that. But today it's a different thing, but we still know. We still know when we're wearing women's jeans... Or men's jeans. I've, I picked up shirt one time. I really like the shirt, and I find the buttons are on the opposite side. And I'm like, it? it must be a European thing. I'm like, you know? And then I'm realizing I've got a women's clothing on. No, mistakes, that's one thing. But the intentionality about it is what he's talking about. So what we see here is a specific statement by God. In 2019, there was an interview in the Wall Street Journal with this same Dr. Paul McHugh. Now in 2019, the 87-year-old guy at that time, an early opponent of sex change surgery, was asked if he'd be troubled to realize that he'd been wrong in his position. And he answered, quote, either the plastic surgeons and the transgender psychiatrists are right, and I'm wrong. And if that's the case, they will have done a lot of good by opposing me, and I'll have been a drag on the system. Or the opposite. Suppose they're wrong, and I'm right. They will have mutilated thousands of children, and I'll look good. Who do you think is sleeping better at night, he said. As we begin to take this moment to start to come down to a close, and there's so much that I haven't been able to address, and and we're not able to in this time period, but I want to leave you with one last illustration here for this moment of time. When I was a kid, my favorite toy was Legos. You know why I like Legos? I can do and make whatever I want to out of my Legos. I liked Legos. They were cool. And so for me, that was my favorite toy. And I'd play with them, and I'd make all sorts of stuff, and 
I had an incredible imagination, and so they became something pretty cool half the time, most of the time, and I'd play with those things. And there are those today that want to say that what we're dealing with here today is um, the Lego mindset of mankind, that you just kind of uh, put together whatever it is you want, you mix, you match, you tear it down, you put it together, you do whatever it is in the process you want to do. And if that's the case, and we're just a matter of not being created, if the fact is that there is no design, then you can do that. You can decide whatever and whoever you want to be. If it's a Lego issue, then Justice Anthony Kennedy's opinion, his statement has total bearing then at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, of the mystery of life. This is it, because there is nothing else beyond us. We're not even intrinsically valuable. We're just machines. And we can do whatever we want to. And that is the worldview. And if that's what you hold to, then you can claim the title of Christian, and that's fine. But you're not a biblically-based Christian, and you're not operating in truth. And that truth and the failure to follow that truth has implications that can't be avoided or annulled. The biblical view found in these scriptures we've just read is instead to say that every single individual Everyone in this room, every one of you in the atrium, every one of you online right now, all of us, whatever your ethnicity, whatever your background, whatever, that you were made in the image of God and therefore you are intrinsically valuable and that your creator took time to shape you, to build you, that he knew you in your mother's womb, that he breathed life into you, that he sees you so valuable that he sacrificed his own son to redeem and recover what was lost. This view is not the one of Legos. This is the one of the art restorer. The one who sees the painting that has been flawed and comes along with the original intent of the artist and restores the actual beauty of that art. It's the one who sees the flaw of someone that, that like they went to in the Piata in Rome one time and somebody went at it with a hatchet and banged on this beautiful work of art, this beautiful sculpture. And when the restorers come to restore it, they don't decide, well, we're going we're gonna to improve upon Michelangelo's work. No, instead they sit here and go, what was, what was Michelangelo trying to do, this genius of a creator? This part was flawed, this one is marked. Let's restore this, let's put this back so we can recover the image that Michelangelo originally had because he was a genius. And this is the imagery of you and me, not Lego pieces that are interdisposable and, and interchangeable like a potato head but that you are instead a flawed masterpiece that God wants to restore and that begins at the center point of your identity in your gender. And it is not a social construct. It is a construction of a creator. And we have some creative license, but not enough to change that. And when we do that, we violate God created them. Put it up again one more time. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. And I want you to verbalize a portion when I show you. So God created mankind in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created them so everyone has value. Everyone has worthy of respect. God loves you and values you. He does not affirm all you do, but he loves you and values you. Do not forget that. In the image of God, he created them. And then what? Male and female, he created them. Gender dysphoria is real. And it's painful. And it's difficult. All the confusion we face in our sexuality, those things are the most painful, difficult things you can imagine. And we need to come alongside in thoughtfulness and compassion. We need to stop people from bullying other people and for darn sure make sure we're not the ones doing the bullying. But we can't slide over to here and call that love. It's not. We don't stand over here and condemn because that's not love either. But we stand in the midst of truth and grace. And young people, if you're being challenged today to explore where you're at and told that you're weird because you don't, when I was younger, we used to call that peer pressure. You got to decide how you're going to base your life on people that will come and go out of your life and could care less for your gay. It was really cool years back. Now it's not. Now, bi was really cool. Now it's not. Transit, now that's cool. One point in time won't be. At one time, smoking cigarettes was the coolest thing anybody could ever do. Isn't every movie, everything, all the place? It was just, and now everyone knows, boy, what were you doing? What were we thinking? Don't get caught with the crowd. I beg for your own lives, don't. Follow the word of God. Stand on that. Be assured in who you are. I've gone long. I got another half hour. Father, we come before you. Lord, we are your creation. We do not belong to ourselves. We've been redeemed. Lord, you see the brokenness of the world. You see the damage that has been done by sin, both ours and, and others that have done that to us. And oh God, you weep for us. We know that. But we can't find it by, by, by following that of the Supreme Court justice that, that we define, that we shape, that this is all there is. We only find it in turning back to you, our creator. In only that way do we become real. In only that way do we become real. So God, this morning I pray for everyone listening that we would turn our hearts back to you, that we'd cease what is really rebellion, that we turn into you and that we'd share our brokenness, our pain, our heartache, and in sharing that with you, Lord, that we'd not only just find solace and encouragement, but there'd be transformation in that. Lord, we need your help or we cannot stand. So Father, this morning, we come before you.